Hello, Conversations with Dwyer listeners. If you are enjoying the podcast but you want a little bit more, you can become a Patreon subscriber, and for $5 a month, you can get bonus content, bonus episodes, and a podcast that I create solely for Patreon where I talk to comedians about the music that they like. And you get a pin that was created by Charlene Yee of the, the, the Conversations with Dwyer logo. So please, become a Patreon subscriber. The link is in my show notes under All Things Dwyer, or you can just go to themattdwyer.com. Thank you, and enjoy this episode of Conversations with Dwyer. on a commune in south america yeah central america yeah what were there was that kind of like a what was that like i guess is what i'm asking it was amazing i mean it was um it was uh it wasn't a cult and it wasn't like there wasn't any kind of religion or anything like that it was definitely a, a commune in the true sense it was a farm in which everybody was you know it was really just like backpacker culture of the nineties, just trying to live for, for, you know, to, to sort of live as long as they could on the lease. So people kind of would end up at this farm and, and you had to do chores and, and like, um, sort of be cooperative with the sort of basic things, making food and stuff like that. But otherwise people were left to do whatever they wanted, but, you know, like, uh, I um, you had to kind of make a job for yourself and myself and this Italian guy became friends and he played bongos and saxophone and I played guitar so our job was to go out into the greater area like the um, towns and stuff try to get gigs at like little cantinas and stuff to so that we could buy things that the farm didn't grow like uh, you know um flower and uh you know we never did we would go for like days and play places but we never made a dime it was silly it was like a, it was a made-up job for a, <laughs> we would come home with like three mangoes you know <laughs> did you but did you kind of in a weird way cut cut your chops doing that yeah it was a definitely it was definitely a um formative time because i this is where it gets really silly, but I, um, I wanted to write screenplays. I was like playing music and I loved music and I had had already like some gigs and felt that, um, idea to have what it's like to be sort of a professional in a way or something. But I, um, I was like, I'm going to write screenplays. Uh, so I, I, uh, was on this farm in the tropics, you know, swinging in hammocks, writing my screenplays. <laughs> uh, people were getting high and drinking beer and doing whatever. It was a lot like that movie, The Beach with Leonardo DiCaprio. And um, trying to get laid, people were trying to get laid and, you know, smoke cigarettes and talk about anarchy and democracy and get into arguments. It was very, like, cliche in a way, but um, I was one of the few people that played music up in the mountains there. There was nothing else. So um, I played like every night with, we would have just kind of these weird jams. And um, I started just singing my screenplays, like, cause I had nothing else to work off of except the stuff I was writing. So I had these like really long winded songs it had lots of dialogue and characters and like no chorus, no hook. <laughs> just, like, <laughs> just went forever. It was sad, you know, like I'm sure it was just must have been insufferable for somebody who was actually, you know, scrutinizing the situation. It was just like, oh man, when is this going to end? It was just went on and on. It was like um, terrible, you know, but, but, it was exciting because I was, I was starting to write probably what I kind of got good at later, which was songs that were 
narratives with characters and sometimes dialogue and stuff. So it was, it was the beginning of a certain kind of thing that I ended up doing better later on. <laughs> what, because uh, it's interesting because a lot of the people I interview, it's common that the screenwriter and then musician or TV writer, like uh, Riley Walker was like, I wanted to be a comedy writer. And I was just like, wow, it's very common. Did you, what moved, what wanted, made you want to write screenplays? I just was obsessed with cinema. I, I don't know what happened, what um, started that. I can't even remember. I mean, at this time I was like, that we're talking about in the commune, I was probably about 22 I had already dropped out of college and stuff. I don't know. I was, I was like indie film had barely been called that yet. You know, it was like the movies that I was um, obsessed with were kind of like uh, Spike Lee's first movie had come out, you know, um, in the late eighties, I think. Uh, and, uh, you know, she's got to have it. And, um, you know, uh, the guy, um, what's his name? Sex, Lies, and Videotape, and all those kinds of movies, and Drugstore Cowboy, and 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 um, My Own Private Idaho, and, and and all that stuff. That was like it was like that era of filmmaking, and I was just I loved it, and so I I was really obsessed with Spike Lee and Gus Van Sant, and. Um, you know, and that kind of led to like heavier people like Cassavetes and all the people that you get into when you really like start to deep dive into um, cinema. And Did you want to direct as well? Yeah, I mean, I even made a movie back then uh, that I didn't want to star in, but the actor bailed out. So I ended up being the... the uh, director and the actor and that's um, hard man i tried that once and i quickly realized i uh, no way it's amazing it was it was just, looking back at it it was pretty ambitious because i made it with my girlfriend at the time who was actually in the industry a little bit had gotten jobs as a dp for um car commercials and stuff and indie movies and if she wasn't a if she wasn't a dp she was like a AC, right? Is that assistant cameraman or something? Yeah. She like handed the lens, the right lens to the guy. <laughs> and if she dropped it, she was like fired. You know? um, but, uh, you know, it was like we actually mapped out the shooting schedule and hired actors. It was in Denver. And um, I mean, this is, a, this is a lovely little factoid of it. You know, I put up flyers around like the college to get like people to help. So I like, I was looking for a sound man, somebody to hold the, you know, um, thing and had, and back then they had the little look like Spock. It had like a thing you wrote it over your shoulder and you check the view meters and stuff. And he was just some Polish guy that was like, "Buck, I'll do it. You know? And we were like, okay. And he, and we, we figured out like five days later that he was deaf we had a deaf sound man. He <laughs> had just been looking at the VUs the whole time. He had been faking it to us. I, why you would want to be a sound man if you were deaf? I mean, maybe you would. I don't know. Maybe it's intriguing. <laughs> <laughs> it's so bizarre. It was just like, what the? F that that and, um, did uh, was he good at it? I mean, he's not I mean, gonna... the sound is there, you know, it's, yeah, he was good. <laughs> I mean, if all you have to do is read the levels, then, uh, technology does the rest, I guess. I don't know. I mean, it was also like, I put an ad in the paper for the, the lead actor. And, um, this was back when you put ads in papers, like, you know, the, 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 the Westward or the Guardian or whatever, LA Weekly, and you put it in the back and there's like, um, but I accidentally put it like in the romance ad. So it was like seeking young male, you know, must not be shy or whatever. So when I was doing <laughs> auditions at like 
I was holding these auditions. I mean, just that holding auditions. It's incredible that we even took it that far, but, um, I was holding auditions at my buddy in the back room of my buddy's restaurant. And like all these kind of like gay stripper guys kept coming for the audition <laughs> because they, they were like, uh, thought it was a gig, you know, like, uh, for, for, for a male stripper. You know? <laughs> and it took me like three or four people to be like, what's happening here? Why is this the response to this ad? You know, like, and I, and I did hire one of them. I was like, all right, you're hired. You seem like you, you know, you know what you're doing. And, and, um, and then he bailed out the day before. So I had to. Oh, he was going to be the lead. Yeah. So, you know, it's like just a comedy of errors. I don't know. Yeah. That sounds like, like living in oblivion. It sounds like your own, you live. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It just, I just looked back and it was like, it's almost like somebody else's uh, life or something. Cause I never tried anything like that after. Do you never direct your own like music videos? Yeah, I have done that kind of stuff over the years. And, I think that anytime you do all that kind of art, like it's going in somewhere, you know, over the years I've in the studio, I have certainly felt like a director at times and I'm getting people to do, do parts, especially with Sunny and the sunsets, you know, there's a lot of dialogue. So it, it went in there somewhere, you know, that kind of experience, but I think that, and also, you know, like that, that movie, like I really wanted it to be like Paris, Texas. So my character is kind of like this 22 year old version of Travis from Paris. Texas. <laughs> <laughs> it's just terrible. It's just terrible. Oh, you don't, you don't think it's very good. Is it out there anywhere? Uh, I have it. I have it somewhere in, on some hard drive that it'll never be seen. But um, no, I don't think it was good at all. It was it was terrible. But I mean, it was great that I did it. I'm glad I did it, and I learned stuff. And it was a you know, I was young. I was in my twenties. It was a great experience to have. But I, I don't think in any shape or form it was good. <laughs> I'm always amazed when somebody 22 is good. Because I, I just compare everything to myself, but if I should put anything out in the world that I did at 22, I'd be like, fuck, I'm sorry. And I probably would be shoved out of society. I agree. And I was much, I was a late bloomer, I think. I, I made art, you know, like we're talking about um, ambitiously through my 20s, but it wasn't until I was like, 31 or 32 that I think I made anything that I look at now as even having any value. <laughs> you know? And so when I meet like 25 year olds who make some crazy great record, I'm always like, you're, I don't know, from some different tribe. I'm definitely takes me a long time to, uh, I don't know, get good at something. <laughs> but I think that like, cause I also call myself a late bloomer and, I feel like though, like when bands come out and they're like 21, those young bands, they usually have three albums and then they're fucking gone. <laughs> it's like, so I feel like if you take a while to figure it out, like you have longevity and so do a lot of other people who sort of get to it later. I think that's probably, otherwise you probably would be like, you know, working in a fast food joint or something or who fucking knows what. Yeah. There's definitely a lot of people that peak early. I've seen that in artists. Um, yeah, who knows why? Who, who knows how it works? Um, I mean, there are also the people who start when they're 20 and and are amazing for 60 years or whatever. There's just all kinds. I always think there's also, there's also these amazing artists that show up when they're like 55, you know, which is a really beautiful thing too. I'm, you know, bank, like, I'm banking on that one. <laughs> I got three years. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, I think it's too bad that music and all the arts and entertainment is quite as ageist as it is and obsessed with young people because 
yeah, that's just a shame. It shouldn't be like that. Um, there's, but, um, but it is, I lost my train of thought cause I'm old and I'm, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <I'm Alzheimer's. laughs> I, uh, it, it, that's all right. I lose my train of thought all the time. Um, I was, you mentioned the label and I wondered what, what, uh, inspired you to start the label which, by the way, you also put out Fake Fruit, which is definitely one of my favorite albums to come out in the last whatever year or whatever. Yeah, I mean, they're, um, they are doing amazing. They're blowing up. And there's a picture of somebody who's pretty young. Really incredible. Yeah, to me, that blows my mind. I think she's 25. I can't remember right I now. I have no idea how old she is. But, and she seems, she's been a, like, I just know from interviewing her, like, she was in New York, like, before she was 21. So she's definitely been, like, working at it for a long fucking time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's another thing, like, people that, you know, get out of high school and they know to go to, like, New York and go to art school. I'm always like, when I was, like, I was like bumbling around Central America. I didn't even know that you sh- should go to art school if you were interested in art. <laughs> didn't even compute. <laughs> I was like, I like art. Where should I go? Oh, I know. I'll just go to Central America. You know. <laughs> well, that's like a. I mean, you can't beat that life experience either. I, mean, I know. I mean, it turn, it's. It, I'm not. Um, I'm glad that I <laughs> did things the way I did it, but. It makes no sense. As when I when I meet people who are sort of like I said, you know, you're 18 and you go to art school in New York because you like art and you know that New York has um, got everything. I'm always like, that. God, you're so smart." <laughs> <laughs> well, if it makes you feel any better, I was I started hanging around a theater in my teens, and I did end up working as an actor there. But you know, I bumbled around for like I was 40 schlepping drinks in a bar so that sort of like going to chicago and thinking things were going to click doesn't always pan out either (laughs) well no it doesn't necessarily pan out but it's just it just seems i just feel like i was out to lunch i guess (laughs) I i just didn't know i was i just wasn't uh i wasn't in the know um but anyway the label, I think I've always wanted to run a label and I actually, I wish I had started it a good 10 years ago in some ways, but, um, I, I would, and I would kind of be like, Oh, I should, I should start a label and I should finally just do it. I should put out my own record and see what happens. And cause I was kind of intrigued by the labels I was working with. And they were kind of a mystery to me. The whole process was a little bit of a mystery. I was like, what do they do all day? What do they, do they like me? Do they like other artists? Do they doing this? You know, why is this email sound so um, curt? And this other email sounds effusive. Are they, are they glad I'm on their label? Are they sad? (laughs) What's happening? Will I ever meet them? Um, You know, like Fat Possum was a huge mystery to me. I was like, who are you guys? And then I would hear like crazy uh, rumors or truths or legends that they were secret gun runners or they were just huge, crazy cokeheads or whatever. You know, like I was always like, who are Fat Possum? Like, um, so that I don't know. At some point I was like, why don't I just do this? And it was scary, actually, because uh, as when you're a musician and you put out records and labels take interest in you, um, it's a big, big deal. You know, it's I would be lying if I said it was um, it didn't mean a lot to have some other entity come along and be like, we like, you know, we think that we can, you know, sell your your art or whatever so it's like when an artist finally gets a gallery it's it's uh it's not to be it's it's, it 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 has a lot of meaning so when you get on a label you're kind of like i don't fuck this up you know like um 
I don't want to self. I don't want to sabotage this. And when you decide to put out your own stuff, you, you know, it's kind of like detaching from a larger ship and being your own little boat on the high seas. It's a little scary. And you're like, well, I'm just have myself now. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, you know, I might be like that, you know, Robert Redford in that fucking boat movie where it's going down, you know, and, you know, you're just like... <laughs> Shit, there's another leak, you know. Um, but now, a few albums later, it's kind of, uh, it's not as scary and it's kind of rewarding. And especially rewarding when you put somebody out that um, is appreciative and is art that you believe in and you have a good relationship with them. So, you know, like Fake Fruit or something, it's been really nice. Did you, did you like see them? And I mean, I know the story of how you two met and how it came about, but did you know when you saw them or heard them that like people would react to that or in the manner that they have? No, I mean, I just knew that they were good. I was like, Oh, this is good shit. You know, (laughs) kind of like, um, just like anything you hear that is good. You're like, good. And then you move on with your day. Um, and I, I sort of, uh, I wanted to put her stuff out and, um, she was kind of holding out for a little bit bigger of a label, which I didn't, uh, take personally at all. I would, I was like, me too, you know, like, uh, um, and so I just decided to be of help and try to send it out to, to bigger labels and stuff. And then the pandemic hits, I think it was right at the, at that time right before the pandemic hit and that everybody just kind of stalled out. So it was really tough to get signed. So I think at that point she was kind of getting carrots dangled in front of her that weren't, um, this weren't manifesting. So it seemed at some point, like, let's just, let's just do everything we can to get your shit out there. It was cool. It was a good. It was. It's a nice origin story, <laughs> yeah. or at least on the label side, you know. Uh, yeah, I mean, the first time I heard it, I was instantly grabbed by it, and it's probably one of my most revisited albums that has since it's come out. Like, it's pretty constant, and I paid for it. I didn't. Fu- I don't fucking stream that shit. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I bought it digitally, but I got to get it on vinyl because. Uh, Oh, well, the second pressing is um, almost sold out. Ah, fuck. Well, I'll do that when I get off with you. <laughs> <laughs> I have a I have a real bad habit of buying records. Oh, that's... Uh, we like people with that habit. Yeah, it, it beats heroin. Yes. <laughs> and that's what I, I say know. to my wife when she gets irritated. I'm like, hey, I'm not sleeping in the park. Yeah, I mean, given only those two choices. (laughs) I I go for the extremes. (laughs) She's like, yeah, when you put it that way, you're absolutely right. I I could be selling this unwantable body for heroin. I could either spend all our money on records or we could all be in prison, you know? Which do you want? (laughs) Did, is there any other artists that you have dealt with or that coming out that you're kind of excited or any, that's, I mean, to say yes. excited about that's like saying like, which kids do you like better? But the, no, 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 there is, uh, the, this, um, there's a, the, the current, uh, San Francisco poet laureate, his name is Tongo Eisenmartin. That's a great name. You might think about interviewing sometime as well. Um, I, uh, I heard him doing some poetry online. I, I, I'm not sure what, maybe it was, he was um, being inducted by the mayor into the laureate status thing, which I, I don't know much about. I don't even know what laureate means, frankly, but um, I think that uh some of the beat poets were laureates, like Ferlinghetti was maybe the first one, and Diane De Prima maybe was one. And you know, it's like the way that, um, for a city to sort of uh, 
acknowledge how important uh, poetry is, I guess. Anyway, um, I was just listening to him uh, and I was blown away. I was like, wow, this is like, I don't even really listen to poetry and this is great. And I think I got, I, I think I got um, damaged by like 90s spoken word. Yeah, that, that did some damage to me too. I think I was young and, and, and um, I heard a lot of 90s yeah, spoken word and I was like, I'm never listening to poetry. This is terrible. I'll stick, I'll stick to reading it. You know? I, Chicago is where the poetry slam shit started. And that's like, I was, so I was inundated with that stuff and it's. It doesn't hold up. I, I don't think it was. It didn't hold up in the present time. <laughs> yeah. It's bad. Um, and it all sort of was connected to like acid jazz and looped jazz and jazz with upright bases. And it was, you know, anyway. Um, so it was kind of refreshing to hear this poet and be like, wow, this is, this is not, it doesn't have all that baggage. This is just very pure. And I was like, you know, I think I want to put a record out of just poetry of this guy's, uh, poetry. And, um, and I was like, how stupid is that? Putting out a fucking poetry record. Who buys that? You know, like, uh, I, I'll do it. <laughs> and, um, and so I, I, I got a hold of him and I asked him and he was down and, uh, da, 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 and he, we set up a recording session and he, he came in and I didn't know what to expect. And I was a little bit nervous. So I was just kind of like, I understand how things go with, musicians but i don't know anything about poetry to be honest um even though i have plenty of you know poetry books uh, in my anyway so we set him up and i was like go for it we pressed record and he did this thing for like 20 minutes and me and the engineer just looked at each other and we were like that was incredible that was like flawless it was like maybe the way I f you would feel when you see a genius. You're like, this is, I, I, I'm not even overstating this. I, I was like, I think that's what it's like when you see like Thelonious Monk or something. You know, you're just like, what the fuck? And um, so I was like, well, that was good. That was pretty good. Do you have, you know, I was trying to think, cool. I was like, uh, good job, young man. Um do you have anything else? You know? And he was like, sure, I'll do another one. And, uh, he did another like 20 minute thing. It was all, it was, it wasn't from a book. It was like improvisational. I think he was pulling from things that he's already written and, and, and new stuff and, and kind of like a medley of different things. And, um, and it was the same. It was, I was like, man, this is, this is incredible. You know, like, um, and then he left and I uh, just remember going to the engineer and I was like, that's like a side A and a side B right there. It's just like the fastest record I've ever seen made. It was made in like an hour. Uh, it was made uh, and um, I'm going to put it out and I'm totally excited. I don't know if people are going to buy poetry records. Are you going to put it out on vinyl? Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I am. I think I I think you should be commended for that. Like, not that I'm some guy who well, you should take my commending <laughs> like it's some hype <laughs> on her, but like, I think that's a, it's fucking just cool. Yeah. And, and I, I, maybe I'm fucking crazy, but I feel like there is a bit of resurgence in the interest of poetry where I think for years, and I think maybe slam helped kill that interest in people. Cause I look back at like, you know, you mentioned Ferlin Getty back in that era, fucking po books of poetry would be bestsellers. And I'm like, well, how did, what the fuck happened to, to that? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, yeah, the sort of the beat Renaissance definitely was, um, made it cool, you know, and, and like Ginsburg and Gregory Corso and, and, um, Gary Snyder, like those were my uh, heroes, you know, as with millions of other, you know, young, young literary types but um but yeah slam was pretty bad and then and then also kind of like 
I, I think the sort of New Yorker magazine poetry, it's like constant. It, it, I think all those poets are great, but it's sort of like, um, it feels very New England. Like there's always like these sort of Mary Oliver poets, poems and like Billy Collins. And it's kind of like, they seem very middle-class, upper middle-class idyllic views in their desks, looking at like New England leaves changing and writing about, you know, um, inner inner feelings and versus like the outdoors and stuff and it's i don't mean to diminish it because it, it is incredible works but it doesn't it never spoke to me you know what i mean it's just not very interesting or exciting in a visceral way yeah uh, there's a guy i discovered last year Luis rodriguez who was actually a former los angeles <clears throat> gangbanger and he writes some interesting prose yeah, and it's I think like, all of that type of poetry that is a little bit more street gets uh, it gets it's just a, it just hasn't been embraced by larger society, you know. Yeah, and that, that from what I've talked to other writers and stuff, that liter that there is that sort of Ivy League literary school in like the New Yorker where they don't they don't want the working class guy among their ranks. I don't think so. Yeah, like, you look at a guy like a writer like Harry Cruz. That guy would terrify. The, do you know Harry Cruz? Yeah, yeah, I read his stuff for years. Yeah, of course you did. You're a smart guy. Look at me, condescending. <laughs> <Well>. <laughs> but a lot of people don't know who he is, and I'm like, he's fucking incredible. And but the Harvard guys would be like, who the fuck is this weirdo? Like they wouldn't go near that guy. Yeah, he was kind of like. Bukowski or something like, you know, they were sort of tough guys in a way. They were a little wild. And um, I don't think a lot of their stuff kind of holds up in certain ways. And But uh, but they were kind of outcasts in their time, I think. And there's those guys like Billy Collins. It's like, it's really clever wordplay, but it's like, but, but, um, but who cares? You know what I mean? <laughs> you know? <laughs> I'm with you. I hate somebody, just even in life, I know people who are just like, okay, great. Okay, you're educated. I got it by your one really flowery sentence. And I'm like, but you're not fun to be around. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. So, so anyway, um, he blows me away and I'm excited to put his record out. And again, I, it's kind of, uh, Feels a little insane to put out a poetry record, but um, I think it's worthy, so I'm going to do it. I think that sort of thing pays off. I mean, you know, that's if you think it's worthy and that's something you believe in, then that should say more than enough. It does to me. I'll buy the fucking thing. Thank you. I need, I, uh, I need some sales. <laughs> <laughs> I, that's all I want to be to you, Sonny. I want to be... <laughs> A sale. I want to be just another number like I am to everybody else. <laughs> That's how I see you, just as a, a nameless PayPal <laughs> transaction. Uh, with how do I wanted to ask you, these are just random. This is a random thought I've had in my head for a while. I did not. Is there any connection between Sunny and the Sunset and Sunny and the Sunliners? Was there a deliberate connection when you came up with the name or is that just totally random no, on my part? No, it was, um, it was, I don't think I actually knew of Sunny and the Sunliners until somebody was like, oh, Sunny and the Sunsets is like Sunny and the Sunliners, you know. I didn't uh -huh. know that that's the same way I figured that out and I was like, oh, was that like deliberate? And I didn't know. I think somebody pointed it out at some point and then I got this like Chicano soul uh, mix record, uh, some, you know, I can't remember if it was Chicano soul part, you know, 38 or San Antonio soul record, but he was all over it and he had these hits. We actually tried to cover one thinking it would be kind of like a cool, um, I don't know, homage. Uh, but, uh, but, but it sounded terrible. We, we, we're not, we're not good at playing soul music, so we quickly scrapped that. <laughs> <laughs> I, 
I only ask this too because somebody mentioned to me a long time ago that you're sort of an, an music encyclopedia. So I didn't know if that was is that true about you that you just have this vast reference level of music? No, I think I, it's actually the opposite. Um, like I know audio files; they've been in my bands. I I, I hear them talk in tour vans. Uh, you know, like they worked at record stores for 40 years. They are the true music encyclopedias. I have mined music catalogs and history just for the purpose of making up fictional musicians and stuff like that. So I have like weird gaps and which is fine with me. Uh, I'm not trying to be an encyclopedia, but it probably looks that way because of the sort of hundred records project and making up names that were sort of like references, sly references and making up fictional band bios and things like that. But, but actually there's just quite a lot of gaps. And when you're around audio files, you very, you feel stupid. You know oh, what I mean? I know some, and I'm just like, and I think people assume because I interview mostly musicians these days that that's what people think I am. And I'm like, I'm just a guy who wants to talk to people whose music I like. Yeah. I couldn't tell is, you what year something came out in and what yeah. blah, blah, blah. Like, I'm like, I don't have time for that shit. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a, it's a certain type of uh, a brain that's attract appeals to, you know, and, and, and you find them in record stores. So that's where they should be because they are the, and they are like uh, these miracle workers to walk in and they and you're like i heard this thing and it sounded like the blah blah, blah and it was probably late 70s and then, and then they they're like come with me yeah. <laughs> it's this you know <laughs> you know yeah i can't i could barely remember my phone number let alone like what year something came out in so yeah did you here's another thing that i because I listen to your music often and you already know that I'm greatly appreciate you. I can't, and I think this is a compliment. I can't pinpoint who your influences are like, which I think is a high compliment if, if I, I would say, but who are some of the guys that, or women or people that, in, that you made you want to write songs? Cause I can't, I think it's fascinating that I usually I could be like, Oh, there's a little of that or, so there's some Brian Wilson. I can't fucking figure out any of it with you. <laughs> uh, I don't know if there was like, you know, one person back when I was first starting to write songs that I was trying to um, aspire to or emulate or anything like that. Um, you know, back when I was like 21 and 22, Bob Dylan and... Tom Waits and stuff were like kind of like the go-to singer-songwriter guys, you know. So I I was definitely listening to them and probably influenced in some ways. But that kind of was passing phase as well. I will say over the last ten years, I do go back to Ray Davies a lot. I just think he. Um, I feel a sort of, I mean, this probably sounds weird, but I feel it kind of, um, he's just my favorite. I don't know. I feel some slight, slight kinship. I, he's, he, the way that he writes songs is almost, it's starting to be kind of a lost art, I actually think, which is that um, it was, if you, if you listen to Ray Davies' songs, most of them are character driven. Most of them are third person about a character. You know, he's talking about two sisters or he's talking about a friend from childhood. They all have names, you know, and that was kind of a popular thing in the 60s. If you think about like the British invasion or whatever, like the Beatles had a lot of songs with names, Rita, Meter Maid and, and, and Father McKenzie and, and went on and on. And there were very like little stories about characters, you know, and, and all of those, uh, bands kind of had a few of those, the who, and the, 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 you know, like, um, Stones even probably had a, a few in the early days. It was, a, it was kind of a popular, um, form of songwriting that we don't really see anymore. And 
to me, Ray Davies was the best of all of those guys. He just, um, he wrote so many songs about little characters. They're almost like little Raymond Carver songs. If Raymond Carver was a songwriter, I think he would have been like Ray Davies. I think, I just think they were kind of connected. Um, there was tiny little portraits. There were succinct. They were amazing. And I have aspired, and I've done a lot of that over the years too. A lot of my songs are characters, character driven, third person kind of songs. And it's, uh, it's kind of a fading art because most songwriting now is, is, um, like expressionistic in, in, uh, in form. It's more like expressionist, uh, art. It's, I, it's, I feel this way because you left me or I am having a hard time because the world is insane or I have experienced this and that, which is great, but it's, um, it's a different kind of, uh, songwriting art form and third person, um, narratives also was big in hip hop for a long time. Um, uh, but uh, it also, as far as I have listened to hip hop into the current era, it's kind of faded out too. Most, most hip hop I hear now is pretty first person, uh, experiential expressionistic kind of stuff. It's not so much about, um, this person with a, with a name and what they did that day or whatever. Yeah. And that's, I, I didn't notice that about hip hop, but that makes sense. And it makes sense of to which hip hop I've liked, which is n- not a ton of current, but I'm not that up on it, but uh, yeah, I like the 90, uh, 90s hip hop was probably, you know, yeah, just my generation, but Gangstar and all those, uh, and tribe and all those things were like, yeah, they were very um, uh, character-driven. Yeah, I I would have... Ray Davies would be... And the Kinks are my... Of that era of the British invasion, I definitely... Ray Davies. Not to brag, but Ray Davies dated my roommate in Chicago, though I never got to meet him. I only talked to him on the phone a couple times. Wow. He was doing wow. a, like, he did a tour where he was playing, like doing sort of a storyteller thing where he'd tell stories about his songs and then play songs. And he played in Chicago. Incredible. I wish I saw that. I yeah. wish I had too, but he came to second city and my roommate was a waitress there and he picked her up and they dated for a while. But the first time he called, I was fucking crazy hungover. And when Ray Davies, <laughs> you don't expect to talk. What did he him. say? He was like, is Joanne home? And I was just like, uh, and he was like, this is Ray. And I clicked in who it was. And I was just like, I mean, I was like insanely hungover, probably out till four. So, wow. But he was just, and then we like small talked for a while. I remember he, because I was an actor at Second City at the time. So he, he took it as a compliment that I laughed at his joke, which I don't Wow. Remember. Then they fucked oh, in my thanks. bed for some reason. I don't know why they fucked in my bed when I was at work, but they did. <laughs> so I, <laughs> I was like, you couldn't fuck in your own bed? Or did you just want to be like, hey, Ray Davies fucked on your sheets? I, we, I should have framed them. I would have uh, framed those sheets myself. But I was, um, was pretty, you know, to talk to Ray Davies, even though brief was quite a, a high point. Yeah. He must have been quite a bit older than your roommate. I have no idea. Yeah, he was. She was somewhere in her 20s, I don't remember, and he was somewhere, this was 97, 98-ish, probably 97. Uh I mean, he's also just an unsung, it's like everybody knows who he is, and he, but you know, it's not like he's going around in stadiums like Paul McCartney, you know what I mean? Like he's, he plays small little clubs. If he still even plays, I don't know. But um, yeah, he's, I think he's a genius. I do that too. And I feel like, I don't know, everyone always goes gaga for Stone's Beatles. And I'm like, I'll, I'll take the, I'll take the kinks and the zombies. Yeah. Well, I don't know why people would even make themselves choose. <laughs> <laughs> We can have them all. <laughs> <laughs> I've got kind of kinks coming in the mail as we speak. I bought, not to brag about that either. 
Did you yeah. did you leave San Francisco or did I? I thought I saw that. No, you... I'm I'm still here. It's still here. I love. I got married in that there town. Yeah. What neighborhood are you uh, in? What's I'm in the Sunset. Ah. Is that which was I moved to the Sunset after Sunny and the Sunsets were named. Uh, so it wasn't named after my. Sunny and the Sunsets was just Sunny Smith. It was I was just playing under Sunny Smith, and I had a band. And I think my bass player Shade at the time was like, you know, we're like the Sunsets, and you're you know in your band or whatever. It was kind of like uh, a no brainer to him, <laughs> who was an audiophile. I was like, wow, that sounds so much better than Sunny Smith. You know, like so it, it was just kind of born like that the band was already had already been formed in a way and this just needed a better name um and then i moved to the sunset district uh coincidentally is there a, a reason when you put out an album just a sunny smith to versus sunny and the sunsets is it or is it just you don't don't feel like i, I feel like at the time there has been but now i don't even know why <laughs> <laughs> at the time I had a rhyme or a reason like I was making this solo record in Nashville uh, or I did make this solo record with uh, Dan Auerbach and uh, some reason it felt like a Sonny Smith record as re- opposed to a Sonny and the Sunsets but I don't know why now looking did he, back did he uh, produce it? yeah He's a badass. I mean, I love his album that he did with Dr. John. He is an incredible producer. I learned a lot just um, watching him. He's, uh, I love that he's, um, he's really fast. And he's pretty like first thought, best thought kind of um, guy, which I really appreciate as well. Like if you have an idea, then you just make it and move on. And whereas a lot of other people sit around and think about shit and, argue and wonder about stuff and his uh, studio was really like it was really fun and, and and it was just um the way he's got in his studio is just it's it's like ready to record the second you walk in you know i i don't know if you've you know, been in that many recording sessions but there are a lot of studios that like you get there and then you're not really doing shit till like four or five hours later because they have to stick these wires in this and make this and pull this mic out and do this. And, Oh, something's wrong with the compressor. It's not getting the signal from the thing. And, you know, engineers are, are, have these like complex uh, systems of channels and all this stuff. And you're sitting there like, fuck, I was inspired about three hours ago. (laughs) Now I just want to take a nap. Um, and it was really refreshing to walk into his thing because it was pretty much like everything was already dialed up. Um, so we were making music within like the first 20 minutes. And and then he's very fast. And um, yeah, so it was really cool. It was really neat. Do you, have you produced any of the bands that are on your label? Because I was, when I yeah. heard, did, you didn't produce Fake Fruit, did you? I didn't look. no. Um, I produced the band's release before that galore. And, um, uh, there's a few coming up that I have produced. Uh, there's a Virgil Shaw. He's kind of a country, uh, old friend of mine. And his stuff is almost like, uh, I don't know, Gothic kind of country or something. And, uh, my friend, Chris Johansson's band, I produced them. They're coming out soon. And, I I love producing. It's really fun. Um, but I would, but I don't know that I would feel like I needed to produce everything. Do, do you do you get involved and in, say like somebody like Fake Fruit? Do you get involved at all with the production, or are you just like go on your way? Well, her album was done when I met it, you know, and the art was done. So it was really more about. Um, being a label at that point rather than being a producer and a label. 
you know, being a producer and a label, just in my humble experience, is um, that's you know that's that's dangerous territory. It's actually not the smartest thing probably to do. <laughs> like, <laughs> like Dan Auerbach's pretty pretty impressive that he he does it so much. But uh, you know, because artists artists are crazy. You know, artists are fickle. And sometimes artists need, you know, somebody to blame for shit. If you, you know, you're kind of like, um, you know, some artists, a lot of artists have trust issues with labels. It's real. You know, like if you're the label and the producer, you could really, you know, <laughs> you could really uh, torpedo a situation. It's almost like it could be a little much, you know. I don't know if what I'm trying to say. I guess the stakes are higher. You know, like the more the more roles you play, the higher the the stakes go, and possible for mistakes. So um, I've appreciated it and 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 um, done it. But uh, but there's something to say about maybe not playing every role. You know. Yeah. Um, and I, 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 there's probably positives and negatives on both sides, you know. Do you have you self-produced a lot? Yes, mostly actually. That's what I thought. Is that freeing or challenging? I think I've changed my um, view over the years. When I was first putting out Sunsets records, I probably was a lot more um, like a producer. Fuck that! Don't touch my shit. <laughs> <laughs> do not touch my shit. <laughs> you know, um, what are they going to come in and say? You know, and I was, I was, I was really scared of producers being um, like somehow being like wanting to clean things up. You know, like ah, this is good, but let's make it sound you know more, um, uh, you know, more. Um, like it should be coming out of a radio or something like that. Let's put better mics on this. You know, like producers would be that that kind of thing. Like, let's um, make it glossier and 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 more professional sounding and things 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 like that. So I I kind of was like, producers, no way. I'm not I'm not letting them near my stuff. You know, like I I want to I want to if I want to record the drums crappy. I don't want to hear somebody be like, no, that's crappy. You know? <laughs> um, I want to be like, and I think it was really important at, at the time. And then years later and albums later, I did start working with a couple producers like Merrill from Tune Yards and uh, James Mercer from the Shins. And, and, and I was like, Oh, the, 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 these people aren't, that's not their agenda. You know, uh, I was a little bit uh, too, you know, too, um, and too much dialogue in my head about it, probably, you know, like these people are actually cool artists and they just want to make a cool project and they're willing to help me. How, how, how amazing, (laughs) how innocent (laughs) and beautiful, you know, whereas I was like, these monsters, don't let them near me. Um, So I sort of had a wake up moment in meeting those two characters and working with them and, you know, going to Nashville for Dan and with Dan and stuff was, he was actually a little bit more on the side of let's make this a little bit more, um, you know, he's in the realm of like winning Grammys and stuff. So I think he has an eye on making things sound radio friendly, you know, as, as opposed to like, like, I don't think he would be the type that, wants to, um, you know, record, record a washing machine first. And then, but what do I know? You know what I mean? I don't know. I make, again, I'm making assumptions. <laughs> I have no idea. Did you have, did you produce this new album? Yeah. And what made you, how do you decide? Cause it's not the first time you've done country music. What was that like, did you just find yourself writing country songs or were you like, I'm writing a country album? And which, by the way, the album's great and I, I really love it. So thank you oh, for thanks. letting me stream it or download it. I can't remember which I did. But, <laughs> but I'll buy it because I'm not an asshole. 
Thank you. <laughs> that will be your second sale that you've promised. God today. damn it, I'm a number. <laughs> I'll uh, PayPal invoice you <laughs> after the interview. <laughs> um, um, I, uh, they're definitely not conscious decisions. That's the beauty of uh, art and uh, a misunderstanding over the years. I've, I've, with people who think that uh, all your decisions are consciously made before you do something, which is actually, I, I, maybe there is an artist out there who is like that. They're like uh, totally removed from making anything. They're just like, I will now make a reggae record. You know, um, that to me seems very inauthentic and who knows what the outcome might be. It could be great, but it seems like an inauthentic place to start. Uh, definitely with, with almost everything that I make, it comes out in this very like organic, I don't know what the fuck I'm doing way. I just feel like making something. I'm just compelled to be creative today. And so I'm here we go. And then you're still kind of in the dark for a good number of songs usually with an album you're like well what am I making I don't know I, I made a voice memo and I sent it to my buddy because I was you know uh, inspired and I wanted somebody to hear it and then you know after you get to about four songs or five songs then it's quite often that you're like oh I see I'm starting to see something here that I'm making I, and then you can maybe assert a little more direction to what you're doing and you're like oh this, these are kind of countryish songs maybe i should get a pedal steel guy to come in and you know then it starts to take form from a maybe a little bit more conscious place but you have to you have to at least get down the road without having any um you know, like any agenda and, and just not, and, and, and without having any ego, you know, like get your ego, like what you think you should make or what you think it should sound like, or what would be cool to make or what you think people want to hear. Like you have to get those demons out of there at least for a little while, while you actually make something or original and give birth to something. And then once it's kind of in real life, then you can kind of, you know, oh, maybe the album cover will be, you know, me on a horse or whatever. You can start to like um, assert a little bit more, you know, mental and a little less body heart, you know, to the process. But if you do it opposite, it's like a dead end road for me. Are you conscious of like when ego shit pops up and you're like, all right, I got to get that out of the way. Or does that take some work or the other, or those, those other factors that you mentioned? For me, it's like a constant dialogue. It's like where, you know, like if I make something, I kind of have to be like, wait, wait, what is, why, why am I making this? Okay. This is not, I, I feel like that's the boogie Boogeyman is your sort of um, your ego and what you think things should sound like and all that stuff, and you have to you have to wrestle it out of the picture. Sometimes it's just not around, and that's a beautiful time to make. You know, you, then you, you're really rolling down the road. You're like, there's there, you're just making shit. You don't know what it is, and you're not trying to find out what it is. And it's a beautiful time to be, you know. It's the one of the greatest creative times, and you should enjoy it while it lasts because it doesn't last every second, you know. Specifically, once you're in the business of art and you're putting things out, you know, there's this whole there's this whole chapter where it's like the art was already made, like the, the cool stuff already happened, you know, like the really beautiful spiritual lovely making of the art happened. Now you're going to spend like two years 
talking about it and telling people about it and packaging it and stuff, you know, can often feel very like, why didn't the beautiful making of the art last two years and the packaging and talking about it last like five minutes, <laughs> you know, it should be, ba- it should be that way, you know, <laughs> but, um, you know, I think it, I think everybody that's kind of in the arts can relate that there's this, um, moment where you're like, Jesus Christ, I, I made that record like two years ago and now I'm, I have to like, you know, make a video for it. What a hassle. I want to, I've already moved on, you know, psycho, you know, artistically. Great album. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Matt. I don't love anybody. I don't love anyone. Thank you very much for listening to Conversations with The Wire. Please become a Patreon subscriber. If you like, also subscribe to the show on your iTunes or what have you not, and tell your friends about the show. That would mean a lot to me. As well as uh, go to the link tree in the show notes or themattdwyer.com or Conversations with The Wire at the Instagram, and you could learn more about the show, buy merch, and all those great things. Thank you very much for listening.